Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Dr. Jacqueline Conway. Jacqueline is the founder and managing director of Waldencroft, a specialist consulting practice working with CEOs and their executive teams. Central to this is facilitating executive teams in strategic foresight and grappling with complexity. She holds a PhD in relational leadership and top team group process from the Adam Smith Business School at the University of Glasgow. Jacqueline writes and speaks regularly on the ways of thinking, acting and being that are required for executives to lead well in a disrupted world. And she has recently published a major research study conducted with CEOs called Advanced Executive Fluency, responding to the new leadership challenges in a complex world. Welcome to FuturePod, Jacqueline. Thank you for having me, Peter. It's great to be here. So, Jacqueline, question one, what is the Jacqueline Conway story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Well, like many of the people who come onto your podcast, um, I have found myself here through a fairly circuitous route. And also, in a way, it found me as much as I found it. Um, I started my career in Motorola, in HR, and moved quite quickly into a change role, the people side of change and organisation development, and was became fascinated with the way that organisations and people change. And I moved from there into roles both in-house and in consultancy in London and had the opportunity to work with major global companies that were undergoing change, everything from M&As to new strategy launches and transformation initiatives. And already at that point in my my kind of professional journey, there was something that wasn't quite sitting right with me around how organisations were trying to change. So you know, I was experiencing really well-intentioned people doing good strategy work. But when it came to sort of implement it or it came to try and embed this in the organisation, something was was going wrong. And so I'll come back to that because that sort of idea of change not working really has, has been the sort of golden thread that has has run through my entire career. So I had my daughter um, when we were in London and we returned to Scotland. I had my son. And at the point at which I was ready to step back full time into into the kind of professional world, I hadn't ever fully stepped off. But in order to, to really kind of punctuate that bit of my life, the point where the children were off going off to school and nursery, I decided to go and do the MBA at Strathclyde, which is in Glasgow. And the university, unbeknownst to me, was home to the Centre for Scenario Planning and Future Studies and actually had a very good international reputation. Um, Kies van der Heyden had been the director there until just before I sort of got there. I got there in 2006. Um, and it was there during that MBA that I was introduced to scenarios and it opened up for me, the world of possibilities. I mean, I was just completely blown away by this amazing uh, way of thinking about the world. And I really loved the way that the the whole scenario methodology 
can help you really quickly come to understand a topic that you pre- previously had no knowledge of. So as a as an approach to knowledge creation, I, I was immediately hooked. And I had the good fortune to be in a business transformation organisation development role at the time in an organisation who were really happy to let me try things out. And so I was immediately <laughs> able to experiment with this both the the futures work and the scenario work that I had been taught yep. at Strathclyde and also the front end of strategy making. So I, I did a lot of work also from some of the professors, Colin Eden and Fran Ackerman at, at Strathclyde on the kind of participatory strategy making work at the front end. And so I did a lot of that work. And then when I moved back into consultancy, I decided I was going to kind of carry that work on. And I really liked... Um, how this was a participatory process, you know, engaging executives Mm. in their collective leadership, considering the future really in a non-deterministic way. Um, You know, there was something about it that I just found really uh, enlivening. At the end of my MBA, I was introduced to Professor Robert McIntosh, who was actually on loan from Glasgow University and was teaching the change elective. And Robert um, agreed to be my dissertation supervisor. And after that MBA, I then asked Robert to be my PhD supervisor and moved to the University of Glasgow. And Robert was chair in strategic management, but actually had a keen interest in complexity and had done some of the early work alongside others, such as Ralph Stacey. Oh. So Robert was was introducing these things to me. And so probably a few months into my PhD, Robert you know, sat me down and said, Okay, Jacqueline, you've probably heard this, Peter, many times, but you know, it's time for the it's time for the ologies where, you know, the uh, ontology, epistemology and methodology. Now, by this time, I had an undergraduate honours degree, a master's degree and an MBA, and I'd heard of methodology. Yeah, but yeah, I knew about methodology, but it was my first introduction to ontology and epistemology. Well, that took me down a three-year philosophical rabbit hole, which Robert eventually had to sort of pull me back out of and say, right, you've read enough for three PhDs, It's, it's time to start applying it. And the reason I was so completely fascinated with this was because in the work that I had been doing with senior leaders and change and this idea, this problematizing of it that I had experienced earlier in my career, the minute I started thinking about these from an ontological position, you know, taking a philosophical stance, yep. it became immediately clear that we were considering organizations from a kind of objectivist ontology, we were thinking about them wrong. The very existence of what, what an organisation is, this idea that it is a, a is a real solid thing, and we were therefore applying kind of rational, reductive, deterministic ideas to how organisations operate based on these objectivist assumptions. Yeah. And so this was like just you know the, the you know the veil is lifted and and I suddenly think this is the pro- this is the problem this has been the problem that's what's been missing indeed indeed and and by extension that was also happening in the leadership literature so the idea that leaders were defined by a set of traits or characteristics that were kind of woven into their personality and you either had it or you didn't seemed to me did not reflect what I was experiencing with leaders. Mm. And so my my PhD then became about 
top teams. It became about relational leadership and taking a relational ontology and looking at how we lead organisations from that sort of perspective. And so there was a huge pivot in my life intellectually and in my work. And post-PhD, that's where I then set up Waldencroft. So I set up Waldencroft in 2016. We work exclusively with CEOs and executive teams. And really, I don't say this to them because, you know, you would be, you can t- you can tell with the micro expressions on their face that you've lost them. But if you start talking to them about ontology, but a lot of the work really is about helping them understand different ways of thinking about organisations. And really the work in Waldencroft is essentially about helping executive leaders who have been promoted on the basis of their functional excellence and their on their excellence in dealing with the here and now, in the in and down, in the day-to-day and in the functional. And then they become executive leaders and they continue to do that, but just from a, a more senior position. Mm. And in Waldencroft, we're not asking them to give that over. We are we are asking them to have a more purposeful relationship with that component of their leadership and what we would call the up and out, the there and then, and the, the adaptation side of it. So it's it's balancing the in and down, here and now, with the up and out, there and then. And as they make that transition then to, to what we call enterprise leadership, then you say, well, what, what is it that we need to consider at the enterprise level? And that's where strategic foresight and scenarios comes back in, because we call it the enterprise five, which is that there are really five things that leaders need to be grappling with when they're at this organisational peak. And the first of them is around strategic foresight, is developing the anticipatory capacity to think about what might impact this organisation and how do I help it be ready for those eventualities? The, the others, just um, just for completeness, is, is around complexity, is around social responsibility with stakeholders, is around ethical decision-making and organisational culture. So they're what we call the enterprise five. And so that's how I do the strategic foresight work that I do now is with executive teams as we try and encourage them to fully occupy their enterprise leadership. With your journey, what you said you found when you found the ologies, when ultimately you found the notion of reality and morality, Mm -hmm. was that something that you think had been always operating at a kind of unconscious level in you or... Were you, like a lot of your leaders, uh, merely a person who's been trying to be effective through technique and method? That's such a good question. And I, I, I think I was at the effect of a dominant worldview that until that conversation with Robert, where he introduced me to the idea of theologies that were running me, I, weren't run, I wasn't running them. Uh. And so, yes, I was, I was looking for method that was helpful and had utility in a particular situation. And I was coming up against the inadequacies of them because effectively effectively what was happening was, and I see this with organisations that I work with now, it was the case for me too, so I have been there, is that we were applying a category error. A category area of of applying a, a logic or a methodology that applies to one sort of thing 
that doesn't apply to others. So if we take, for example, complexity, you know, complex problems are structured in a radically different way than the sorts of problems that exist in the physical and natural sciences. And so the idea of a kind of rational, deductive, deterministic approach that we might take for an engineering type of problem, and it works beautifully in those scenarios because we are working, there's a consistency of of the within the category we are applying the right logic and the right methodology to that problem yep. but with complex problems with adaptive challenges we're trying to apply those same methodologies and that's where we come unstuck and i was very much at the effect of that for that early part of my career until i really started to consider this on the basis of what's what's the kind of philosophical position i'm taking here mm. The other thing too, which I'm going to push you on just because I think you can handle it, is the notion you talk about the technical operative who moves into leadership roles and tries to still maintain their technical expertise. And the thing that gets tied up in your competence is your sense of who you are. Yes. And to some extent, you talk about moving leaders to a more constructivist, participatory Yes style, that also requires them to change who they think they are and what makes them effective. That that is absolutely the challenge. And um I mean we don't say that going in because because who would say who would sign up? <laughs> no. <laughs> and so yes, it at the at the most basic level it's it's about changing what you spend your time doing. But as you say underpinning that is actually that they need to become different in the world, that they need to evolve themselves and adapt themselves to move into a space which paradoxically, the more senior they become, the more participatory they have to get, the more they have to. One of the things we say in Waldencroft is that, you know, that this peak that leaders, that this organisational peak, we call it the perilous peak. Mm. because organisations are failing faster than they ever have before. CEO tenure is less than it has been forever. I mean, it's it's five years as the global average, and the UK doesn't even get there. It's something like 4.8 in the UK. And there's been some really robust research done on executive leadership and the failure of executive leadership are those who sort of quietly struggle. So there's something going on at this perilous peak. And, and we believe that part of it is this failure of executive teams to fully step into this enterprise leadership. And part of the reason that that is so challenging is that they have to let go of so many things. One of the things they have to let mm. go of is the old ideas of the heroic individual who can get there by, by their, their sheer willpower or force of personality, or by their brain power, or by their energy. So a lot of the things that did them well in the other parts of their careers, I mean, in some ways, I mean, I have a great deal of empathy for these leaders, because we haven't prepared them well for these these positions. No. All of the training we have given them up until that point almost becomes the thing that gets in the way of them leading really well going forward. And so we're asking them to engage properly with collective leadership, with relational leadership rather than individual leadership. We're asking them to work productively with the unknown rather than the things that they 
can solve on a kind of day-to-day basis. And we're asking them to move away from execution or at least balance execution with adaptation. And and as you say, that this represents a huge developmental leap for these leaders individually and collectively. And we are different from a lot of people who do enterprise leadership. We think the reason a lot of it fails is that they try and do it individually with leaders, whereas we work with the executive team as a collective unit of performance, you know, that that they do it together. And so the the loneliness and the struggle and the all of the kind of existential angst that might come up as they make this leap is ameliorated in some way in that they are going through it together. And the positive outcome that can come from that is that if they do make this this step into enterprise leadership, then the results can be fantastic, both for them individually and for the leadership team that they become part of. But also they create a capacity because they've moved up. They've created a gap in the organisation where others can also move up. And so we can see that the, the, the paradoxical idea that by improving the most senior leadership, actually you democratise leadership across the organisation. Nice. Good. Thanks, Jacqueline. So second question, we can go a bit deeper into this. This is the question where I ask the guests to explain in more depth, a framework, an ology, if you want, that is central to who they are and what they do. So what do you want to go into deeper with the listeners? Yeah, there's a number of things that really inform the work that I do in, in, in strategic foresight. One is going back to tools. I was sort of brought up on the scenario method but I, I later actually did the Houston Foresight Certificate and actually really love that methodology of taking you from the kind of the inward change, you know, what's what's coming into us from outside and then how do we how do we work with that to then affect change outside? So the entire methodology was helpful for me. But the, the the future cone, I think one of the things that I find really helpful about that working with senior teams, when we take them through the, the strategic foresight approach, and of course we don't do it for them and then present the results, the whole the whole purpose of it is that the knowledge is created by them, for them. And in so doing, when we get to the point where we're looking at the baseline, the executive teams that I work with typically at that point realise that the baseline is a, as much a work of fiction as 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 anything else, as yep. as any other, no matter how ridiculous a, a kind of future scenario you may have painted, that the baseline itself is as much a work of fiction. And this idea that you know these executive teams have been able to work very well with concepts of continuity, concepts of you know let's continue to forecast on the basis of where we've come from and extrapolate that into the future in an incremental way, but not so good at looking at what are the discontinuities that are coming and how does change actually happen in the outside world and how does it impact us. And so a lot of the work that we do is we also help them look at the organisational history and how it came about through these discontinuities rather than through some sort of linear progression. Mm. 
the idea that the that the baseline is a work of fiction is is often a, a revelatory thing for senior leaders to experience. And danger. Status quo is in fact some ways the most dangerous thing you can believe in. Yes. Oh, I, I, absolutely, absolutely. And yet, it's it's a strange sort of Kaiser Soze. You know the greatest trick they managed to pull off is that the that the forecast will come true you know i've always found it really curious that you know there there can be these forecasts and because it comes from the finance people or whoever they they they'd say this is what's going to happen next year jacqueline and i've even found myself thinking all right okay so that's what's going to happen until i check myself and say that's not necessarily what is going to happen and of course, I mean, I remember, I rem- if we're going to talk about discontinuity, you know, I, I remember working with some senior teams, one in particular in December 2019, and the growth trajectory for 2020 was a couple of percentage points less than it had been for the previous five years where they were on sort of fairly exponential growth. And this was this was a worry. And then lo and behold, you know, by, by March... <laughs> You know, the world had just turned on its axis and and that particular organisation was one in which was profoundly impacted by lockdown. They went down to 0.5% of what they were doing turnover-wise the previous year. So this organisation was all but obliterated by the discontinuity. And yet, even still, some within that organisation and within the, the, the wider parent organisation, I remember in March them saying, that um yeah we've modelled this and we think we're going to be out of this by June, and this this was June 2020 they were talking about and I remember thinking yeah. to myself yeah. I'm, I'm not a very good futurist because I I can't possibly see how that can be the case and as it turned out you know they were completely wrong. Another thing that is really helpful for me is the complexity sciences and the idea that when we are grappling with complex problems that they are structured differently from kind of technical challenges from the kind of problems that we receive that we see in the physical and natural sciences and therefore that we need to we need to apply a different methodology and that we need to think about them differently and also that the kind of leadership we therefore display has to be different so if we go back to that idea of executive leaders moving elegantly between, I mean, if you imagine it in a kind of infinity loop of moving between the execution and the adaptation focus, so the execution being the kind of technical leadership, the day-to-day and the adaptation, the moving up to enterprise leadership, the things in the execution have typically been much more in to use the Kinefin framework, you know, in the complicated domain. Yep. But the adaptive challenges that they are then confronted with as executive leaders oftentimes sit with, and certainly the, the whole of the Enterprise Five are really about complexity and helping leaders see the way that these problems are structured very differently and therefore the way that you have to solve them differently and not just by applying a different methodology sometimes you can do that but it's also that it requires a different presence in your leadership a different way to sink into what it is to be a leader and that's what we mean when we talk about in the research that we've just completed the advanced executive fluency research where we talk about these fluencies of being different ways of thinking acting and being 
because it requires different ways of thinking, acting and being to solve these different sorts of problems. One of the things I'd like you to go a bit deeper into is this notion of participation and executive groups having potentially more fluency than individuals can ever have. But one of the challenges, you talk about the loneliness of being the solo leader, Mm -hmm. but working in teams brings its own sets of stresses in terms of working with people you may not agree with and working with people who see the world differently to you. So how does the real hard work of working together help develop some of these capacities? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, I do believe in the group as a whole dynamic. I do think that when you put the entire group together, that it has a life that is separate from the individual characteristics of the people in the room and it creates something different. And so when we work on that particular group as a whole dynamic, then we're starting to get somewhere. But of course, you work on that dynamic by bringing people together who have different ideas of what it is to be close or to be far away from other people. So I think it was Schopenhauer who said, you know, that that we get too close, the the prickles of the hedgehogs, you know, prick each other and and actually so so getting too close is is deeply uncomfortable but in a winter environment you know if they move too far away from each other they get, they get too cold and that puts them under a great deal of danger so how do you get sufficiently close but but not so close that you have the benefit of being together without without the the kind of negative impacts of the prickliness that that can come from that now I see part of my role is to act as a container for those organisations, for those teams to, to to start testing the water. And of course, in some teams, it's a relatively easy ask. There are some things going on in the dynamics where the people are able to move closer together and do the work relatively easy. Sometimes we're invited in to do work with executive teams actually because of what's perceived as interpersonal difficulties with the team um, itself. Mm. Now, when that happens, in actual fact, we don't work. I mean, there's a great saying in complexity, you you never tackle a complex problem directly. And so we tend to find that interpersonal difficulties within a senior team are very often the result of other things that are not in place that needs to be in place. And so, and one of the things that I did through my PhD research was develop what's called the integrative framework of team effectiveness that looks at the conditions for high performance in executive teams. And it sits within three domains. There's a structural domain, a relational domain, and a practical domain. And when we work with senior teams, we start, we don't start with the relational. Ironically, we start with the structural. And within the structural domain, there are four parts. There's purpose, task, composition, and structure. And so we always start with purpose. We say that um, structure follows purpose, composition follows purpose, task follows purpose. So the first thing we do with teams is actually have them articulate why do you as an executive team exist? What is it that you and only you as a team can do for and in this organisation, that if you stopped doing it or if you don't do it, no other team's going to pick it up. 
And that's really the enterprise leadership that we've talked about. Invariably, there are other people who can pick up the functional things. Their heads of service, the, the CFO might have a really strong financial controller who can pick a lot of these things up. You know, So the technical side is in effect dealt with elsewhere. And we have the executive team articulate their purpose. And from that, we then say, okay, if that is the reason that you exist as an executive team, so this is a team purpose, not an organisational purpose. If that's the purpose of you existing as an executive team, what are the tasks that you have to do in order to advance that purpose? What is the composition of this team in order to achieve that purpose? And what's the structure of it? So how does this team relate to other teams? What teams feed into the executive team? And where does the work of the executive team feed out to? That's the structural bit. And so we work with those things first and foremost. How does it relate to the board? How does it relate to the first tier leaders? And from there, we then look at the relational domain. And within the relational domain, we're looking at what are the norms within this group and and what are the most effective norms in order for this group to work well? What, What are the values? What's the levels of trust? Because, of course, we know that psychological safety and trust is absolutely paramount in teams. And what's the levels of affiliation? And affiliation, actually, Peter, to your, your, your question around how do, they, how do they both become kind of individual leaders, but also part of this team? Affiliation, their, their sense of do I want to be in this team? Am I proud to be in this team? Hmm is actually a a hugely important part of that. And we work with them on that too. And then third, the practical domain as well. What are the results you're trying to achieve? What's the performance of this team? And how do you challenge each other and hold each other accountable and actually do your work? How do you do strategic foresight? How do you grapple with complexity? How do you make ethical decisions, for example? So that's where that's where we tackle the work. So we have a holistic way of, of going about that within the senior team. Thanks, Jacqueline. Third question, where I talk to Jacqueline Conway, mother, citizen, friend, neighbour, about the futures that you're sensing for you, around you, possibly in Scotland, whatever. But what are the things that you're seeing emerge that get you excited, that get your attention, that get you thinking? And what are the other things that are emerging and making you think and wonder and possibly even worry about some of the futures that we might be seeing? Mm. Your question is so timely because, of course, I am sitting here in Scotland and along the road about 35 miles away at COP26 is happening as we speak. Barack Obama is here in Scotland. Perfect timing. Yes, and we are having conversations that are potentially the most profound conversations about the future that we could possibly be having. And contrast that just here in Saturday, Scotland saw its biggest ever demonstration where people took to the streets to activists to say, you people inside COP are are not doing it fast enough. You are not paying enough attention. And so, you know, I, as as a concerned citizen, and as you say, as a, as, as a mother, 
I'm watching on the news around the kind of technical bits of the detail, you know, the bits, the words that are in brackets that are up for grabs. So, you know, the difference between will and may in a a legal document is massive, you know, and there are hundreds and hundreds Mm. and hundreds of these things still to be ironed out. And, And, you know, so you contrast you know, the the sort of pedantic, albeit necessary, legal wranglings around words that's going on inside the COP26 village with people out in the street in the cold and the rain demanding change. And I can't help but feel that the bridge between both of those things is still very, very great. And it does make me feel pessimistic in some ways that that we are going to have the wherewithal to do what we need to do fast enough and I worry that one of the things that happens in terms of change happening is that it is only when we are met with a crisis it's only when the pain of not doing something is or the pain of doing something is greater than the pain of not doing it that that we move into action and so so I do fear for that uh, in in our in our world, and I guess that is one of the reasons why I also work with with executive leaders, is because I do see part of their role as stepping up into this enterprise leadership, is taking responsibility for more than just profit. You know this this idea of you know are you going to be a good ancestor? How long is the legacy? And moving away from the tyranny of short-termism that, that we see in organisations, particularly those that are doing quarterly reporting, you know, they're publicly owned and they're doing quarterly reporting. I, I think that that is depressing in some ways. And, and, and yet I do see the possibility within the teams that I'm working with that they, that they are now not just talking about growth for growth's sake, and they're not just talking about profit for profit's sake, and that the ideas of sustainability, I've always been slightly uncomfortable with sustainability and prefer the idea of regeneration. We don't want to sustain this, do we? <laughs> Exactly. It has a really kind of static quality. And and I prefer the idea of how do we regenerate our organisations to adapt and evolve um, to the circumstances that we find ourselves in now. So so I feel that within the climate and I feel within organisations that there is also a move to radically rethink leadership and radically rethink work. And that's already going on. I mean, I think uh, COVID and lockdowns accelerated that conversation, but that is certainly what my work is is all about. You're working in a place, working with organisations and their executive teams, and you're working there because you believe that you can support enterprise leadership in in those domains. But of course, the people that are in COP, as you say, the people that are inside are not from those domains. They're from political domains. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that enterprise leadership can be cultivated in political domains? That's a really good question. And I'm not sure that I know the answer because I don't work in the political domain. But I would question whether or not executive leaders inside organisations have got a role to play because I do see that politicians only have quite a small role to play. And I do see corporate leaders um, and other leaders at COP who are making the shift Mm. 
and who are doing what is necessary. And and in some ways, those people are are doing it faster and they're doing it with boldness and with courage more than the political leaders that I see. So so I guess I I, I have a really fundamental belief that that the business environment has got a massive role to play and that leaders therefore need to fully take up their role in seeing in seeing their responsibility and their business's responsibility. And not just, I mean, I am fortunate enough to work with some executive teams in the renewable sector, but a lot of my work also happens with executive teams who are in industries that are being rapidly disrupted in this new world. And that causes them a great deal of consternation, but it also provides for them an opportunity to adapt and evolve in a way that if things were just going along in the status quo and they were, you know, they were posting kind of quite good results on a quarterly and annual basis, that there wouldn't be an incentive to change. There now is an incentive to change. And I see those older industries also really making significant shifts in the world. And it gives me a great deal of pleasure to get alongside them and help them t- take old industrialised models and, and bring them into the 21st century for a world that we need them to be going forward. Thanks, Jacqueline. Fourth question, the communication question. So how does Jacqueline explain to people what she does when people don't necessarily understand what it is Jacqueline does? I guess I don't call myself a futurist and I locate the work that I do around strategic foresight within the work that I do with top teams. So so rather than saying, oh, I'm, I do strategic foresight work, I talk about the fact that I help executive leaders fully step into their enterprise-wide responsibilities. And those responsibilities include strategic foresight. And what do I mean by that? Well, that's really about looking to the trends and disruptors that are coming that may have an impact on their business. It's about looking at non-linear risk and the impact that that might have on their business and looking at things like emergence, what, what things potentially can coalesce to create a situation that could have events or issues that could have a massive impact on the organisation. So so I come at it more from the work that I'm trying to do to elevate executive leadership and I use the work that I do in strategic foresight as, as one of the, the drivers of that. If you want to encourage someone to move towards this who might be reluctant or hesitant, how do you sort of, if I use the word entice or attract a person to to move towards this way of operating? I guess one of the things I have learned over time, when you do a PhD and you immerse yourself in that sort of literature, it's very easy to find yourself talking in terms that don't translate very well when you start to talk mm. with real life leaders. And so one of the things I am increasingly trying to force myself to do is to speak about my work in a way that is very pragmatic. And so I am inviting leaders to think about the 
nature of the environment that they are working in now, the fact that the context has changed, that disruption and turbulence and complexity and uncertainty are a normal and natural part of what it is to operate at the peak, at this perilous peak. And that in order to do it well, then they need to fully embrace that, not run away from it. And in fully embracing it, they have to then deploy a different kind of leadership, a kind of leadership that doesn't just work with, let's try and make things certain, you know, with kind of standard financial forecasts, but let's also work with the unknown and and work with these things productively in a way that has been harder for them potentially to do in their lower stages of the organisation. But once they once they reach this peak is really the kind of bread and butter of what it requires. And the paradoxical idea that that by leaning into all of the things that make the perilous peak perilous, the fact that it's uncertain, the fact that there's disruption, the fact that discontinuity can have a massive impact on the business, that we can't necessarily know these things, but we can prepare for eventualities, that that's the sort of thing that I think executive leaders need to be working on and in working on them they they actually make the perilous peak less perilous because they have in a way ameliorated themselves from a lot of the the blind spots that typically happen at that level Mm. lovely thanks the last question do you you've talked a little bit about the research but i'd like to hear a bit more about it so advanced executive fluency what do you want to tell the listeners about and how can and if people are interested in in the research you might want to talk about how people might get their hands on it i began this research about a year ago and it stemmed from what I was observing in executive leaders needing to adopt new ways of thinking, acting and being if they were to be really effective as enterprise leaders. And I had an idea of that the fact that they didn't just need to grapple with some of these new ways of thinking, acting and being, but they needed to become fluent in them in the way that they would potentially be fluent in, you know, reading a balance sheet or, you know, a, a profit and loss. You know, that once they get to that level, there should be an expectation of fluency in certain areas. And so I went out to 17 chief executives, some of whom I knew, some of whom I didn't know, and we worked together on what are those areas of fluency. And we came up with four. We originally had five and it didn't quite make the cut. I might say a word or two about that. But there was there was there are four fluencies. And those fluencies are cognitive fluency, futures fluency, ethical fluency, and emotional fluency. Now, cognitive fluency is the ability that we've already talked about to be able to understand what is the structure and nature of the problem that I am trying to solve here and be and being fluent enough with applying a different mindset, a different approach to different sorts of problems. And so the way that we might solve the problem of 
a technical engineering type of, of, of problem around how do we build this bridge or how do we build this road or, or how do we put this uh, wind farm up is different from, you know, how do we work with organisational culture or how do we grapple with different stakeholder demands. So cognitive fluency is the ability to both recognise different problem types and then to be able to deploy different mindsets and tool sets in order to solve them. And then there's futures fluency. Futures fluency is really the ability to be able to anticipate what might be coming in the future, to to think about the, the trends and disruptors, to think about how things that perhaps live far in space and time can come together to create events that could have a huge impact for the organisation. And the fact that that leaders at the Perilous Peak really ought to be looking out, up and out to the long term as part of their day job. And really the the sort of villain of that futures fluency is effectively the, the tyranny of short-termism that I've already spoken about, that, that executive leaders are very often having to report on a quarterly basis. And so we naturally lead on that basis. And, and the other is the comfort of certainty. Mm. And, and so inviting executive leaders to, to step away from this kind of tyranny of short-termism and comfort of certainty and lean into the unknown in order to really help the organisation anticipate what might be coming. And then there's ethical fluency, and this fluency comes from the fact that I believe that executive leaders are making ethical decisions. They are grappling with ethical conundrums on a day-to-day basis. One of the things I do in my work is I observe executive teams as they are having their conversations. And very often they're having ethical conversations, but they're not they're not labeling it as such. And when we talked to CEOs around what would ethical fluency be? It's the step away from the idea of the the fairly straightforward black and white right and wrong and when you get when you're operating at that level you're really grappling with situations where there isn't one right answer anymore so a good example of that is that a number of the clients I was working with had implemented a a policy of doing away with zero hours contracts which had been prevalent in the UK and you know they had done that against the backdrop of of being profitable of 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 doing you know doing well as a business and then making the decision that they were going to do away with it and so that wasn't an ethical conundrum because you know zero hours contracts are inherently not ethical the challenge came when they were on their third round of redundancies post covid lockdown and the ethical conundrum is, do we let more people go or do we reintroduce zero hours contracts? Now, there you're in the grey area. And this ethical fluency is is really about what ethical framework are you going to bring to your leadership and how are you going to become able to have those kind of conversations and bring to the surface the values and assumptions that underpin the decisions that you make. So that's the ethical. And the emotional fluency is really around so often executive leadership is about being able to hold yourself steady, your own emotional process steady. So another thing I see in executive teams is a difficult situation arises. We might see it in a piece of strategic foresight work. We might see it in some other kind of 
conundrum that they are grappling with and it raises anxiety. It's deeply anxiety-provoking for them. And what what they do is they very often go straight to let's make a decision, any decision. And the decision-making is as much about dissipating their own anxiety as it is about actually solving the real problem. And so emotional fluency is helping executive leaders to understand their own emotional process and to be able to sit longer with their own discomfort and not knowing that they can then make the right decision rather than the quick decision. So that's the four that's the four fluencies and and we think that this has has some utility for working with senior teams and and so the report is almost published and and people can sign up for it at, at the Waldencroft website and it will arrive in their inbox this side of Christmas. Jacqueline, it's been an absolute blast. I've had a ball, as you can gather. So thanks very much for taking some time out to talk to the FuturePod community and congratulations on the research. And uh, I look forward to getting a copy in my Christmas stocking. Thank you very much, Peter. It has been my absolute pleasure. Really appreciate it. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now. Goodbye.